I mean, if you have your Bibles, you can open real quick to 2 Peter chapter 1. This morning, it's an incredible thing to think about, the idea of giving it all to the Lord. When we read um, in Acts chapter 2, Wayne preached about it actually two weeks ago, and how the church came together and they gave of their possessions, they gave of their all, whatever they had, they shared, they cooperated, they were partners in the kingdom of God for the glory of God and for the good of the church. And today, for just a brief moment, I want to talk about the celebration of generosity. I want to talk about what it means to receive a gift and to give a gift. Briefly, here we are in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It reads like this. His divine power granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Two things I want to mention real quick, and we're going to pray, and then I'm going to share for just a moment. You have been granted... You have been given, you have been gifted as a church, as a believer, as the body of Christ. If you remember one phrase this morning, you have received the greatest gift of all time. Amen? Amen. The greatest gift. Let's pray. Father, as we for just a few minutes look at the scripture, I pray that you would stir in our hearts affections for your namesake, affections for your glory, and affections for the lost. I pray, God, that we would be so grieved over all the lives in Tiff County, Georgia, not just Tiff County, Georgia, but all throughout the world who do not know you and are living in a life absent of the Holy Spirit, apart from the power and the grace of Christ. And I pray, God, that you would do in our hearts what we cannot do for ourselves. Move us with compassion and with power and with grace. In Jesus' name, and everybody together said... Amen. I want to remember four quick things this morning. Number one, He supplies. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. What He says in the Scriptures is all that we need, He's already given it. If you look in Philippians 4.19, He says that He gives to us, He supplies all of our needs according to His riches and glory. And how many knows that our benevolent Father is rich beyond words? But it's not just possessions. And today that's what I, for a moment, want to shift our eyes to if you can. He supplied the greatest gift of all time. It wasn't money. It wasn't riches. It wasn't clothes. It wasn't food. It was the greatest gift of all time. In Romans 5, 8, he said that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, when, when he could have supplied judgment and condemnation, And he would have been justified. Because Romans also tells us that we've all fallen in sin and come up short of the glory of God. He would have been justified in dishing out wrath and judgment. But instead he dished out grace. He poured out grace and benevolence and love and mercy and said, whosoever will come in. And I don't know about you, but that blows my mind this morning that a God who's full of compassion and grace and mercy has invited you and I into his story. So remember this morning, number one, that He supplies. Number two, He supplied the greatest gift. When we look around and you think about your talents, you think about your resources, you think about your finances, but most of all, think about this. this, Right? The fact that we were able to wake up this morning to breathe, that He gave us the very breath that we have. 
He gave us the very breath that we have, the greatest gift of all, the breath of life through Christ Jesus on the cross. He supplied and he supplied all of our, all of our gifts. The greatest one being the perfect life of Christ on earth, the sinless death on the cross, and the incredible resurrection from the grave. So what is our response? In view of that, there has to be a response, right? When we look at the greatest gift of all time, when we look at the greatest God of all time, there has to be a response. And my encouragement to you today, and not just when we talk about uh, our generosity initiative and giving to uh, the future uh, building or whatever God has for us in the future, not just about those things, but what is the response of our lives tomorrow morning? Not when we break ground, not next week, not six months from now, not six years from now. What is the response today, tomorrow, the next day? What is our response to the greatest gift ever been given? And here's my encouragement. It's a word that I want to stick with you every single day of your life. And that word, simply put, is surrender. In view of all that God has done for us, in view of His benevolent blessings and Him pouring out His life on the cross, what do we do? TJ, what do I do? Surrender. The Bible says, brothers, I beseech you by the mercies of God that you would present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Depending on the translation, this is your reasonable service. How do I respond to all that God has done for me in Christ? You can have it all, God. We surrender. We go all in. We take our lives and we lay a blank check in front of God. And not, I'm not talking about generosity. If you want to do that, that's awesome. But with our lives, allow your life to be a blank check before God. God, whatever you want, wherever you want me to go, whoever you want me to share with, whatever you want me to do, here I am. Very last thing. One, he supplies. Two, he supplied the greatest gift. Three, our response to that should be surrender. And four, this morning, briefly, why? Why surrender? Number one, because he gave the greatest gift. But number two, because we have the opportunity in our surrender to reflect the mercy and grace of God. Scripture says that we are now ambassadors of God, God making his appeal through us. So listen, that means that when you and I give of our time, our talents, our money, our gifting, our grace, our love, when we welcome others in, when we share the gospel, we reflect the God of all creation. You and I, broken, sinful men and women, get to be instruments in the kingdom to bring other broken men and women into the fold of God. Is that beautiful this morning? Be confident that he supplies. Be confident in your surrender and be willing to reflect his love and his grace and his mercy. Father, thank you this morning for the opportunity to just think briefly about what you've given. Lord, you gave it all. And the Bible says that for the joy that was set before you, you endured the cross, despised the same, the shame, and are seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before you, you endured the cross. So Lord, let us endure this life. Let us serve, let us give, let us love for the joy that is set before us when we pick up our cross. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you, choir. TJ, can you look around and see and agree with me that First Baptist Tifton is alive and well? Amen. I have a brief message on generosity from 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 7 through 16. 1 Kings chapter 17, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to that. The sermon is entitled, Trusting God. And it's a perfect example of someone who trusted God. And I know what you're thinking. Crazy stories like that happen in the Old Testament all the time. But that's the Old Testament. Things like that don't just happen today. Well, why not? Is God the same yesterday, today, and forever? He is. So what's different? Maybe we are. Maybe we aren't obedient like some of these folks were in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But we can do better. 1 Kings 17, verse 7. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. Let me give you a little a running start here. Elijah has just appeared on the scene. Uh, he is in the middle of a, uh, just chaos in Israel because of what King Ahab and Queen Jezebel have done. He is the enemy of Ahab. He is fleeing for his life. He's been by a brook called Kareth. In verse 3, a drought has occurred, the brook has dried up, and now God tells Elijah to go to Zarephath. The word of the Lord came to Elijah, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of meal in a jar and a little oil in a cruise. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. She's starving. Elijah said to her, Fear not, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of meal shall not be spent, the cruise of oil shall not fail, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of meal was not spent, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord which he spoke by Elijah. Pray with me. Father, these are strange events happening. And they're recorded for us in Scripture. Not just as an exception from the norm, but God to show us what the norm can be when people obey you and believe you and follow you. So let the story of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath not be just a, an aberration, but something that we have experienced in our church and in our own lives, in our families. In Jesus' name, amen. What does the Bible have to say about finances? Well, let me tell you the story about Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. Ahab and Jezebel have made a mess of things in Israel. As a matter of fact, in the previous chapter, it is said of King Ahab that he was worse 
than all the other kings that went before him combined. He provoked the Lord to anger more than any other king who ever lived, than all the other kings combined. In an, in an agricultural society like Israel, rain was essential. And it, it had been a drought. And that led the children of Israel, the reason why God didn't want Israelites to marry other countries and other nationalities was because he knew they would bring their faith in with them and it would pervert the, the worship of the one true God. Well, that's exactly what happened because Ahab married Jezebel and Jezebel brought the worship of Baal with her into Israel. The worship of Baal was a fertility cult and it, he was the God of rain. So when a drought occurred, it lured the people of Israel away from worshiping God to worshiping Baal. They thought he was the rain God. And they worshiped him and they deserted the Lord God of Israel. And God stood back and he said, okay, you want to see who the God of rain is? You want to see who's in charge of the weather? I'll show you who's in charge of the weather. And for three and a half years, it did not rain in Israel. And there was a crisis. King Ahab's reign was in chaos. Israel became the dust bowl of the Middle East. It was a mess. And the people began to return to God and, and cry out to God and say, we, we repent. We're sorry we deserted you and worship Baal. We're coming back. And so Ahab and Jezebel were on the decline and they were blaming Elijah and they were looking for him to wreak their vengeance upon him. He is over by a brook in Kareth. And even the brook there dries up. And so God comes to Elijah and says, I'm going to send you to Zarephath, to a widow, who will take care of you and feed you. Notice God's word comes in the middle of the crisis, not, in, not before a crisis, not two years or five years in advance, but God's word always comes. We're in the middle of a crisis. And he says, go to Zarephath. There a widow I have commanded will feed you. Now, I don't know why God sent Elijah to Zarephath because there was a drought going on there as well. Widows had no standing in the community. She had no relationship with her father-in-law or with her father. She had no income. She had no husband. She had nothing to support herself. It was a dire situation for this widow. Let's say, for example, you lost your job and you lost your home and God told you to walk 90 miles, let's say to Macon, to be cared for by a homeless woman. Oh, and by the way, uh, the chief of police has issued an all-points bulletin for your arrest. What would you do? He goes to Zarephath. It's a 90-mile walk. Um, he was obedient. He did what God told him to do. Maybe that's why God used Elijah in such mighty ways is because when God told him to do something, he did it. He didn't debate, he didn't question, he didn't challenge, he just did it. Zarephath was in the middle of Phoenicia and the capital of the, 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 the city seat, the capital seat of Phoenicia was at Zarephath. And the king of Phoenicia was a, a man called Ithbael, who just happened to be Jezebel's father. So here is God sending Elijah into the middle of a territory with a drought with a king who was Jezebel's father to be cared for by a widow who was starving to death. What sense does that make? Elijah is hungry, he's persecuted, he's on the run, he is heading into the headquarters 
of the enemy. But he was obedient. You know what? You have no idea what your, what future significance of your present obedience might have. You have no idea what the future significance of your present obedience might have because you can't see into the future. We just know that when God calls us to do something, we have to be obedient because the future hinges upon it. And so whatever God is calling you to do, you've got to do it. You have no way of knowing what might happen in the future. What your, your obedience to God today makes on the future. So what are the odds of Moses or of Elijah walking into Zarephath or of you and me walking up to Macon and discovering the one person that we're supposed to meet? Well, Elijah walks to Macon or he walks to Zarephath 90 miles and there is this widow gathering sticks at the city gates. Just, just somebody said coincidence occurs when God prefers to be silent. Coincidences happen when God prefers to be silent. So here's this woman, the very woman that Elijah is supposed to bump into. She's gathering sticks at the city gates. And El Elijah approaches her and says, feed me. <laughs> and she says, look, man, I don't have anything baked. I'm just gathering some sticks that I can make a fire and prepare a last meal for my son and me because we're going to lie down after that meal and die. And Elijah says, your jar of flour will not run out and your cruse of oil will not run dry until the Lord brings rain. Because God will never lead us to do anything where the grace of God cannot sustain us. God will never lead us where the grace of God will not sustain us. So what can we do? Here's some steps to take for God to work in our lives like he did in Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. First of all, we've got to learn to partner with God. We've got to learn to partner with God. God tells the, the widow to bake bread out of the, flyer, the flour and out of the oil. My question is, why didn't God just drop a loaf of bread in Elijah's lap? Why did he tell the widow to take the oil and the flour and make bread out of it? Have you ever noticed that whenever God does something in the Bible, he always partners with somebody to make it happen? He could have just dropped the bread, but he uses the widow and the oil and the flour to make it happen. God is going to flood the earth, but he uses, he partners with Noah to build an ark. God is going to part the Red Sea, but he tells Moses to hold his rod over it while he does so. God is going to tear down the walls of Jericho, but he has Joshua and the children of Israel marching around, blowing their trumpets. Jesus is going to feed 5,000, but he has a little boy with five loaves and two fish and the disciples to collect it and distribute it. Why does God always work through somebody to accomplish his purposes. He, he, he wants to partner with you and me because as we work, God works. That's how it happens. God wants to partner with us to accomplish his purposes and you and I don't know the future significance of our present obedience because we don't know the future. The second thing I want you to see is faithfulness. 
and our financial responsibilities, no matter what your circumstances might be. My goodness, if anybody had been exempt, if anybody in the Bible had an exemption to God's expectation of stewardship, it would have been this widow who's about to starve to death with her son. It reminds me of the, the woman with the two mites in the New Testament that Jesus saw put into the, the temple treasury. I tell you, she gave more than anyone else this day because she gave out of her life. She gave all she had. Everybody else just gave off the top. This widow of Zarephath gave her all. And as a result, she fed Elijah first, noticed, and then she had enough for herself and her son. And the next day, and the next day, and the next day. When you're obedient to God, His grace will supply your needs. This Central to Love campaign that we're embarking on, we get to see whether or not we're giving to God out of convenience or out of sacrifice, out of a religious habit or out of a relationship with Jesus through love. Martin Luther said, I've held many things in my hands and lost them all. Only when I, that which I placed into the hands of God, I still possess. I've held on to any, many things and I've lost those things. Only when I place into the hands of God, I still possess. Listen, God doesn't need our money. But he chooses to partner with us as he does time and again to accomplish his purposes. He doesn't need our gold. My, he, he paves his streets with it. But he expects us to use what he's given us to take as many people with us to heaven as possible. And that's what this Central to Love campaign is all about. Partnering with God so he can work through us to accomplish his purposes and then being faithful financially. Even as this widow of Zarephath was who had absolutely nothing and saw God bless her as a result of her obedience. Let's bow together. Father, it's a frightening time to know that you're calling us to do something that we can't do by ourselves. <laughs> we have to step out into the realm of faith, into the realm of the unknown, and trust you to make possible what you're calling us to do. You know what the needs are. And you know what you've blessed us with. And you've already provided that for us or you wouldn't be asking it of us. But we need to be faithful and we need to be obedient. So years from now, we can look back on this day and following days and know something happened there. That day that only God could do. Something happened that day that was doomed to failure unless God stepped in. And you did. And we were privileged to be a part of it. So God, move among us in a powerful way. Call us to faithfulness and trust and obedience so that your will might be accomplished in our lifetimes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.